most of us have heard of the redwood forest in Northern California. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's the big forest with the big trees. And, and to be specific, it's 133,000 acres of forested area, and some of the trees reach higher than 300 feet. That's like taking a football field and flipping it vertically, and the trees are even higher than that. These trees are so big that one person simply can't wrap their arms around one of the trees. And at the same time, the trees are so big that they just instinctively prompt us towards these responses of, of, of appreciation and seeing their greatness and their beauty. Well, this morning we are headed into what I would call one of the redwood forest portions of Scripture as we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's big in terms of, of the ground we're covering. We're looking at three chapters today, which is a lot to cover in 35 minutes or so. But it's really important that we look at these together as a unit. They, they go together, and so we need to look at them together. And these are also big in terms of the topics we're discussing. These chapters bring front and center before us topics like God's sovereignty and his election. They bring before us topics like human responsibility, what we need to be doing, and then also the future towards which God is moving. This is big stuff. And so Romans 9 to 11, I compare it to one of those trees in Redwood Forest. Even though we can't wrap our arms all the way around it, Nevertheless, it should instinctively drive us towards seeing God's greatness and the beauty of what he's doing in the world. And so this morning, we want to get a flavor for Romans 9, 10, and 11. I want to help us understand its meaning and start to wrap our arms around it. But my ultimate goal this morning is, is not complete mastery of these three chapters. I mean, if we're honest, even the Apostle Paul, who wrote these three chapters, even he didn't feel like he had complete mastery of them. Listen with me as I read how he finishes these chapters. At the end of Romans 11, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable, do you hear that? How unsearchable are his judgments. And his paths are beyond tracing out. So so, so we can trace them out a little bit, but there's a little bit where our brains are just going to smoke as we try to wrap our minds around the transcendence, the greatness of God and his work. You see, my goal this morning is is that after this sermon, we have a bigger view of God and what he's doing in the world. I, I want you to listen this morning so that we have greater confidence in who this God is and what he's doing. I'm excited because, because as we learn about what God is doing in the world, I think we discover what that means for us and how we live our lives today. And this gives meaning and purpose, and I would even say it, sh- it should give us direction in terms of what our lives are pointed toward and about. So, uh, so I want to pray for us this morning because we need God to, to be our primary teacher. And then we're going to jump right into Romans chapter 9 after that. But let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time of worshiping you through singing. And God, we pray that we would continue worshiping you now through hearing and receiving your word well. Father, we need you in your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the great things that you have for us in this passage of Scripture. So, Father, we invite you into, into this space and into our hearts in a special way to be our teachers. So, God, may we just, uh, may we just put aside some of the things that, that are maybe interrupting our thoughts and devote our attention to you and your word right now. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. 
Well, the way to get into Romans chapter 9 is to let Romans 8 lead us there. And so what I want to do is I want to take just a few seconds and review how Paul ends the 8th chapter. I want to read just a small handful of verses that he finishes with there in Romans 8. In verse 31 of Romans 8, Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And then jump down with me to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is good stuff, right? I mean, who, who doesn't resonate deeply with the love and the hope and the assurance that we, that we see Paul just pouring out in these verses? Every time I read this passage, I love just reminding myself and seeing again that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has already shown us love by sending Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. Nothing can separate us from that love. I mean, it'd be great. Paul, hey, this is a high point. Let's end here. If, if Paul were talking to a publishing company or an editor, that might be the sort of advice he gets if he was showing them this manuscript. Paul, end on the high note. Or in just a few chapters in Romans 12 through 16, Paul starts getting really practical with applying everything he said in Romans to the lives of the readers. So, so we might want to say, hey, Paul, let's just jump right to the practical side of things. Let's get nitty-gritty and nuts and boltsy, you know, with this. What does this mean for us today? But, but the thing that I want us all to see is that, is that Paul doesn't stop at the end of Romans 8 and put the final period to his letter, in, in his letter to the Romans. Paul doesn't jump right to Romans 12 and start getting practical with us. No, you see, one of the things we want to be doing as we come to Scripture, come to God's Word, is we want to try to follow the train of thought of the biblical writers so that way we can understand it and what that means for our lives today. And so as we try to follow Paul's train of thought, that takes us right from Romans chapter 8 and all of those great statements we just read into Romans 9. And the thing is, as we transition from Romans 8 into Romans 9, we discover some tension in Paul's line of thinking and his train of thought pretty quickly. I want to read just the last couple sentences of Romans 8 one more time, and then I'm going to flow right into Romans chapter 9 so we get a sense of this tension. When Paul's original readers were first reading Romans, they didn't have the numbers in their Bible separating verses and chapters. They didn't have section headings that some of us have at the, at the beginning of different chapters of our Bible. No, they, they would have read straight from Romans 8 right into Romans 9, and they would have been alerted to some of this tension that I want us to see. So, so let's go back to Romans 8 and just reviewing those last few sentences and then right into 9. Paul writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I speak the truth in Christ, he continues. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And then listen to this, because this is not where I would have expected Paul to go. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Everything he'd been talking about, nothing can separate us from that love of Christ. I wish that I myself could be cut off from that for the sake of my own people, my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Paul is just going through all of these Old Testament blessings that God dumped on his people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Verse 5, he continues, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You see the tension there? How does Paul go from some of the most exalted statements in Scripture, trumpeting the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from that. How does he go from that to experiencing the emotion that he just comes right out and says, here's where I'm at, guys. Great sorrow. Unceasing anguish. What's going on? Here's what I think is going on. Here's what seems to be Paul's line of thinking here. You see, Paul knows what life with God offers. That's everything he'd been writing about in Romans 8. That's where he talks about, hey folks, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. That's what the love of God offers. Our adoption to sonship as God's children through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God offers that we discover in Romans 8. Paul is aware of all these things. And and then in Romans chapter 9, Paul is in anguish because because he is so aware that, that the people who should be the first in line to receive these things, to receive all the blessings that Jesus came to offer us, the nation of Israel, they aren't receiving Jesus Christ as God's Messiah. Not for the most part. By and large, God's people, the ethnic Jews that God had been working with so much in the Old Testament, if you know your Bibles, they're, they're rejecting Jesus. And so this situation of Israel rejecting Jesus, this, this apparently led to, to some very understandable, in my opinion, very understandable questions that were probably lingering in the back of the minds of many of Paul's readers. They were maybe asking, so, so if God worked with the people of Israel in the past and they're rejecting him now, here's the question, has God's plan changed? Is God still in control? Has God scrapped his original blueprint and is he starting all over with a fresh drawing board? And, and what I want us to see and to feel this morning is that, is that if we're honest, I think that those are the sorts of questions that a lot of us are still asking today. Many people, maybe even in this congregation here right now this morning, are asking these sorts of questions. Is God still in control? What happens when when God's plan doesn't go the way that I thought? Is, Is God really able to follow through with what he promised? Can I trust God's plan? Those are penetrating questions. But I think these are the sorts of questions that that come out of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so what Paul does in these chapters is he takes the initiative to get ahead of these sorts of questions, and he addresses them head on. And Romans chapter 9, verse 6 is key here. Paul says, God's word hasn't failed. He says, no, God hasn't started over. No, God isn't doing something brand new that was unexpected. 
He says, God's word, all the promises that he gave to his Old Testament people, hey, they're, they're still firmly in place, folks. In fact, everything that we see happening in Jesus is the culmination of those promises, to use language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 10. Paul is saying that God is still working from the same blueprint, you know, that he had been working from. And so what Paul does in these chapters is he goes out of his way to include a ton of Old Testament direct references and say, hey, everything you see God doing now, that's what God said he would be doing. So, so God isn't doing something new. He's doing exactly what he's always promised he would. Some scholar counted, and he found just under 100 direct quotations from the Old Testament in all the letters of Paul, right? So, so Paul wrote 12 letters from the New Testament, 100 quotations, just a little bit less than that. I think it's 87 or 89, something like that. Over one-third of all of Paul's quotations of the Old Testament, over one-third occur in these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. So Paul is saying, hey, let's unroll God's blueprint. Let's look at what he has been doing in the Old Testament. Yep, that's exactly what he's still doing. And, and here's a really simple summary that helps me put together what this blueprint is. That, 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 that captures uh, what, what Paul is saying in these three chapters. He's saying that, hey, God is working to save a people for himself. God is working to save a people for himself. We read in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that that's what God started doing when he began his plan of redemption all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament with his people Israel. That's what God is doing when he's writing this, when Paul, when, when Paul is writing this. And that's what, what, what God will bring to perfect completion, awesome completion, one day, still future. That was true when Paul was first writing the book of Romans. And that truth that God is still in control is absolutely still true today. And so where I want to focus our attention this morning is, is on understanding some of the underlying assumptions that go into God's blueprint. If, if God is working to save a people for himself, if he is perfectly in control of that, and if he's going to bring it to awesome completion one day still future, what are some of the underlying assumptions that will give us a key to the blueprint so that, we, so that way we can understand it and apply it for our lives today? And, and here's what that key to God's blueprint is. Here's that statement that if you guys are writing something down, here's, here's one of those statements to be sure and write down. The key to God's blueprint is that God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are totally engaged. Look with me at that statement for a second. Because if these two sentences are true, this has tremendous implications for how we live our lives, right? If, if God is sovereign, that means that I'm not. That means that I'm not the only or even the primary voice for what's valuable and what's true and what is worth building my life around. Somebody else has designed that. I need to fall in line with that, not, not go against it. If, if we are totally engaged, that means living life on the sidelines isn't an option. That means my greatest good in life isn't just getting through the week so I can enjoy my leisure time on the weekends. It means God is doing something in the world that he wants to invite us into and involve us in. If these two sentences are true, that's a game changer. 
That's, that's a life changer. That's a perspective alterer for how we live our lives now in Omaha, Nebraska in the 21st century. And so, so, so let's look at how Romans 9, 10, and 11 unpack a couple of these statements. And, and let's just start right at the top with the first statement. God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, I, I get that acknowledging the leadership of someone else over our life goes against the grain of how we tend to think and how we're taught to think even so often. I mean, an easy illustration of this for me is, is parenting. As, as Carrie and I parent our four boys, one of the truths that we've had to come back to again and again and again, and one of those truths is kind of transcended life stages and phases of their life, is, is that, hey guys, you're, you're not in charge. Right now, dad and mom are. And so if they want something, and if they come to us, and if they present that, if they present that desire as a demand, <laughs> instead of as a request, kind of packaged in manners, one of the things they're going to hear me say is, hey, hey guys, you're, you're not in charge. The way you approach us as, as, as your dad and your mom, it needs to show some respect, it needs to show that you understand that we're in charge. The reason I do this is because someday my four boys are going to be men. And they are going to be on their own, under their own roof. And, and then I can't control what they do. But, but even then, I want them to know that ultimately they're not in charge. God is in charge of their lives. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 9. He's reminding all of us that ultimately... We're not in charge. He says, ultimately, God is in charge. And some of the boldest statements underlining God's sovereignty, some of the boldest statements in all of Scripture underlining this, are found here in Romans chapter 9. Look with me at just some of these. In, in this chapter, we find important words that show sovereignty, words like election. And we're not talking about politics here. We're talking theological election here. We find verses like verse 18 where Paul says, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's strong stuff. And it's right here in Romans 9. Or just a few lines down from what I just read in verse 20, we find Paul using this, this very vivid word picture to underscore God's absolute sovereignty over his creation. Paul writes, who are you, asking all of us, a human being, to talk back to God, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? That's strong language, right? It's biblical language, right? And so Brookside, one of the truths that, that I want us to start to wrap our arms around is that God is absolutely sovereign. He is the king and not us. And if we're going to make sense of God's blueprint, this is one of the things that we have to understand and, and I'll even choose this language carefully, submit to. Put ourselves under that truth that God is sovereign. But I want to be sure and add this important point to that because, because like with, with every architectural blueprint, there's lots of layers of detail to that blueprint. 
And, and there are lots of layers of detail as well to this reality that God is sovereign. We need to remember everything that, that the Bible says to us about who God is. God is holy and loving and just and merciful. All of these things that God's word says, we need to be sure to package together with his absolute sovereignty. Because, because if we don't look at some of these other things at this level of detail, we can misunderstand God's sovereignty to equal ruthless dictator. But, but I think as we look closer at God's word, we see that God's sovereignty is good. And that's the important detail I really want us to notice this morning. God's sovereignty is good. Uh, let me illustrate things this way. Um, for about 40 years, Burger King's ad slogan was, have it your way, right? We've all seen the commercials. And, and the idea was that you could walk into Burger King and, hey, if I wanted my hamburger with extra ketchup and no pickles, I could have it my way at Burger King. But, but I'm very glad that every time I walked through the doors of Burger King, there was a little, just a small sign on the door when I first walked into Burger King reminding me that, that even if I wanted it my way, there was still some higher authority that, that governed in some way my desires for how I wanted my meal. And, and this sign said, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? Because if, if I wanted my hamburger with extra ketchup and no pickles, but if I didn't have a shirt or shoes on when I walked into Burger King, it didn't matter what I wanted, right? I wasn't going to get it because, because of that sign on the entryway door that exerted a higher authority than me when I was within the walls of Burger King. And, and the thing is, I'm really glad that sign was on the doors of Burger King. So that way, when I'm there standing to order in line, there's not some guy with athlete's foot and a plant growing between his toes standing in line in front of me, or, or the guy that forgot to comb his back, you know, standing there. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that that rule was in place. And so did that rule exert ultimate authority over me? Yes. But was it a good thing? Yes. And so we need to keep in mind that God is good. He is a gracious king. For those of you that have been joining us for, for this whole series we've been doing on Romans, you'll remember from chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we have all, all of us, we've done plenty to rebel against God. If God were a ruthless dictator, he could have snuffed us out like that. And yet, this same book of Romans that asserts God's absolute sovereignty says that no, even in the midst of all of our rebellion, while we were still sinners and enemies of God, it says in Romans chapter 5, God sent his son to die for us so we could be reconciled to him, so we could have new life. Everything that we saw in Romans 8, that could be ours. So, so if that's the kind of king that God is, sign me up, right? I am, I am glad to give that sort of king my allegiance and my trust and my faith and my obedience because that is a trustworthy king. That is a good and gracious king. That is not a ruthless tyrant. God is king. He's sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign. And he's absolutely good and gracious at the same time. Even, even as we acknowledge that God is, is a king and, and a good king, I still 
think a lot of us can slip into a common misunderstanding of, of how that translates over into, into our own obedience and our own responsibility. Because we can think that, hey, if God is in control of, of everything, why should I do anything, right? If God's going to take care of it, why should I be concerned? Why should I be involved? Why should I be engaged? But Paul doesn't even let us start down that road. Because if Romans chapter 9 says a whole lot about God's sovereignty, Romans chapter 10 says a whole lot about us being totally engaged. Paul doesn't give us, give us the option of going passive. He says God is absolutely sovereign and we are totally engaged. And the first way he gets into that is he says God's sovereignty, he says we are engaged, God's blueprint, it invites our faith. God's blueprint invites our faith. You see, for, for Paul, God's sovereignty that he'd been writing about so lavishly in Romans 9 in no way takes away, in no way takes away from our responsibility to respond by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's where in chapter 10, the words like faith and belief start popping up all over the place when they had been very absent for most of Romans chapter 9. And so, so, so let's see what Paul says about responding in faith. Let's go back to God's word and read from Romans chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 9. Paul writes, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, if you have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 11 continues, As scripture says, anyone who believes, there's that word again, anyone who believes or has faith in him, will never be put to shame. God is gracious with his sovereignty. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so as we try to connect the dots between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, I just want to keep reinforcing exactly what I've been saying. God's sovereignty encourages and invites our faith. You see, in his sovereignty, God has chosen to make a way to know him and be right with him available through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God didn't have to do that, but in his sovereignty, he chose to. And if this is who God is, then, then again, that should draw us in to being part of God's kingdom under his good reign. We should be drawn to God, and the right response to that, the way, we're, the way, the way we re reciprocate, is, is by choosing to place our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And so if you're here this morning, and, and you've never taken that first step, that step over the line, to say, you know what? Yeah, I, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior and a Lord and a King who is better than me, because the kings I've been serving aren't great. Let me encourage you, if that's you this morning, to take that initial step of faith and trust. God's sovereignty invites it, as we've seen. God is a good and gracious king that will receive you warmly and eagerly. But even for all of us this morning who have been following Jesus Christ for a long time, maybe for decades, maybe for months, years, whatever it's been, this invitation to faith, it's not something we do once and then we graduate on from. This, this, this response to God's sovereignty with trust 
and faith and confidence. That's an ongoing posture of our heart, not a one-time decision that we move on from. So, so, so let's all respond to this invitation to faith because of God's good blueprint and his good sovereignty. And then, and then I love how Paul continues on in, in the very next set of verses in Romans, and he pushes us right next to this, uh, right, right to this next way we can, be, we can be engaged in God's plan. And here's what he writes in verses 10, or chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, he begins, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? Do you hear all these ways that we're invited to, to participate in what God is doing? How can people hear without someone preaching to them, with someone sharing with them how Jesus Christ is working in their life and transform them? Verse 15, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then verse 17, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ that we have the privilege to share with others around us. And so God's blueprint, it sends us on mission. God's blueprint sends us on mission. God is doing something in the world. He's, he's got this great blueprint we, he's working off of that we've been looking at this morning, saving a people for himself, and we get to be part of that. Few things, nothing maybe, is ex as exhilarating as joining God in what we know from Scripture God is about. And so if we see from Scripture that God is about bringing a people who are far from him into close and right relationship with himself, few things are as exhilarating as being neck deep involved in that. This is one of the reasons why our Go Teams trips are so great, such a great experience for so many involved, because, because they go and plunge into God's redeeming activity in the lives of individuals and in the places we touch. It's why it is so fun to get emails and, 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 and have conversations with people who are finally able to have that conversation with their coworker or their neighbor and say, I was able to share with them about my relationship with God. It was just a little bit, but I was able to, I was able to start having that conversation. It's so exhilarating. Why? Because that's what God is about. And if that's what God is about, that's what we should be about as well. So if you're a Christian who's been sitting on the sidelines for a long time and wondering why other people's experience of God and of the Christian life, why it seems just flat out foreign to you, it's because you're sitting on the sidelines. One of the ways God shows us and manifests himself to us is through our obedience to him and getting engaged in the mission of what he's doing in the world. So let me encourage you and even challenge you if I can do that to, to get in the game, to jump in knee deep or waist deep and see what God might have for you as you join him in what he's doing in the world. Well, there's one more way that I want us to see we can be engaged with what God is doing in the world, with his blueprint. And that's that God's blueprint, it drives us to worship. God's blueprint drives us to worship. Remember those redwood trees we were talking about just a few minutes ago? How their greatness just prompts this knee-jerk reaction, this response of, of saying, wow, that's an awesome tree. Compared to it, I am small. 
but that's an awesome tree, you know? That's the same sort of knee-jerk reaction that Paul wants us to have as we read about God and what he's doing in the world here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So for all of us this morning, that's where I want us just to draw ourselves back to a very big view of God, that we can trust him, that he cares for us, that he's good. But for some of us here this morning, in a special way, this, this reminder that, that, we, that we're supposed to worship as a response to God, this is the thing you need to hear. You don't need to hear about another thing to do or another thing to add to the reminder list. You just need to remind yourself that, that because of who God is, that should instinctively prompt us to worship. So, so let's read these last few verses of Romans 11 and, and let's pray that our response to God would mirror what we read Paul writing here in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? I love verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, my dad is a, is a contractor and he builds residential homes. And if, if I'm ever walking through, through one of the homes that he's building, that that construction site is just a maze of lumber and uh, wall braces and studs and plywood and everything else it is. I can't make sense of everything that I see going on as I walk through that construction site, but my dad can. He has, he has the blueprint, and he is in complete control of making sure that project goes from digging a hole in the ground all the way to this completion of a really cool and beautiful house that somebody's going to live in someday. That's what Paul is wanting us to hear from Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has a blueprint. God is in control. He's in perfect control. And what he's doing is awesome. And so if there's one thing I'm wanting you to be leaving with this morning, it's a big view of God and this refreshed awareness of how God invites you to be involved in what he's doing through faith and mission and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just come to you in such great response to your sovereignty, Father, by, by placing our faith in you, maybe in some initial ways this morning, Father, maybe just in some fresh and refreshed ways, God, reminding ourselves that you are good and we can trust you. God, we, we, we come to you this morning ready to commit ourselves to mission, open our eyes to what you're doing in the world and how we can be involved with that. And Father, may who you are always drive us to worship. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.